This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential. So, director Christopher Nolan has been adamant that his new blockbuster tenant open in the theaters, pushing the release date week to week. Now, after months of the pandemic crushing the box office, Tenet opens in theaters. Well, at least to as many territories as possible. For months, the media has been asking the rather inflated question, will Nolan save cinema? And the industry is looking on. And for movie lovers and those itching to go back to the theaters, does it hold up? Ugh, the pressure. Join us as we enter the time-bending world of Christopher Nolan. I'm so happy to have with me film critic and writer whose perspectives I so enjoy and sometimes enjoy to disagree with. John Bleasdale's work has been featured in The Guardian, Independent, Sight and Sound, and much more. His recent piece for Hot Corn called The Many Lies of Christopher Nolan is fascinating. And let's see what sort of lies he's found in Tenet. John, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Christina. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're a Brit living in Venice, which sounds just as James Bondian as Tennant wants to be. Absolutely. Well, I, I work uh, I work in Venice at the university, and um, and I actually it's even better. I actually live in my mountain hideaway, uh, <laughs> like like Blofeld in one of the Bond movies. Yeah. I love it. So here's what I'm thinking we're going to do, John. Both of you and I have seen the movie, and I'm really looking forward to discussing it in some depth, which translation means you explaining it to me. Um, But I'm thinking that, so there are going to be spoilers in that part, but I'm thinking we'll start off first a bit in general, just to get your thoughts on if you liked it and, and where you see this movie in the Nolan universe, so to speak. So I'll give a shout out when we get into the more detailed spoilers of of the movie in case you listeners want to watch it and come back and listen. So John, what are your general feelings? Do you love it, hate it? And do you want to take a quick stab at a plot summary? Well, okay. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll start with the plot summary. Um, we have a unnamed protagonist uh, who is at the very beginning uh, a member of the CIA, but uh, after um, a mission goes wrong, finds himself involved with a secret organization called Tenet, searching for objects which travel backwards through time and have been weaponized in some way. Um, and I think that's almost as far as you can go, uh, not necessarily because you would spoil it by going any further, but because um, you really do get into the weeds and the intricacies. Uh, and I think it is a film best approached with as little knowledge as, as possible. Uh, the question for many people will will be, does that change much by watching the film? Do you do you leave the film with as, as little knowledge as you uh, Are as you, you had still the in the weeds? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are the weeds even taller? Is it even more negative? Uh, um, now, in terms of did I enjoy it, I, I loved it. I really did enjoy it very much so. Um, I don't think it's by any means his his best work, but I think Christopher Nolan's one of these um, uh, one of these directors who's absolutely um, a victim of his own success. I think he's raised the bar for what he's doing so high 
that we apply to him a sort of critical fastidiousness. I mean, he, he invites it. I don't, you know, I'm not, not going to play a violin of sad music for him, but he, 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 he's made so, such a, a, a consistent body of work, which has been intelligent entertainment, that, um, that, that it seems to be almost like a cottage industry to try to pick apart his films and find all these inconsistencies. Something we would never do with a well with a, a James Bond movie, for instance. We would never sit here and really go into how how exactly does this work in James Bond's universe. Um, I agree. The wonderful thing about this movie, because I really enjoyed it as well, is finally after waiting so long to go see a movie, we get a movie that we can pick apart and talk about, and just the idea of going to the theater and then coming out and talking and talking and talking to my husband to you was just part of the incredible enjoyment of, of a movie that lends itself to that. No, I mean, this is my perfect, this would be my perfect sort of date movie in a sense that you, you, you go and see the movie and you go for a meal afterwards and you yes. can spend the whole meal. You don't have to worry about having to talk about anything else because there's enough here to, to, to go into. Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I first came to Nolan watching Memento, like, like most people, I didn't see following uh, his, his first feature. And I was blown away by Memento. And then, you know, Insomnia was, was okay. The Prestige, I think, is, is, is now my favorite. I love the Prestige. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I would put that down as, as a genuinely perfect film. I don't think there's a shot or a moment in that movie which, which I would change. Um, and then I like the Batman films, but already by the end of the trilogy, you already had people talking about how long it would take to get escape from a nuclear blast and all this sort of stuff. And, and somewhere along the line, they forgot that Batman is, it's Batman for crying out loud. You don't really need to ask these questions, but he'd so shifted the, the level of quality and intelligence and consistency that we were supposed to expect from something like a comic movie so much that, um, that his films were suddenly being analyzed in this way. Um, so yeah, and, and then with this this movie, I mean, you can see how consistent he is thematically as well. You know, um, the his time movies, and memory and oh, precisely. I, I'm not sure if you saw, but there was someone mentioned on Twitter, Gaspar Noé, uh, re reacting to the film and saying, "We're both really interested in time." And he does it very differently to me because, of course, Gaspar Noé made Irreversible, which tells its story backwards. Um, but it was quite interesting that these two utterly diverse um, directors could connect, could see something of worth in what they were doing. Actually, I'm not sure if it's mutual. I'm, I'm pretty sure it will be. Mm. They're both they're both Kubrick heads as well. So I, imag I imagine they would have a lot to talk about. I think this is a movie that you just have to go with. It's a matinee spectacular. It's it you know it plays with genre. Um, the fact that there's so heavy exposition. I mean that's nothing new. The the first part of Inception, you have Joseph Gordon-Levitt walking around telling us the rules of the upcoming movie for ages before. That's sort of, you go with it. Where it got weak for me was the Elizabeth Debicki character, which I thought was damsel in distress he's severely underwritten, um, I thought was disappointing because he's not great at writing female characters in general. Yeah. I did not mind at all being confused, which I think a lot of critics seem to be. And I think that's sort of the wonderful part of going along with his films. And the set pieces, I mean, he just outdoes himself each time. 
that I, I was watching the first, like literally the first three or four minutes where we're immediately in the midst of an opera house um, terrorist attack. You just immediately, there, there's a, that, that scene, which ends up being relatively short, that would be uh, uh, any other movie's final scene. Right. It was, it was, and it would have used it for a lot longer because the, the premise, having the audience knocked out by uh, tranquilizer gas while a shootout is taking place, that premise is, is worth a 15-minute you know, action scene. And it, 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 he, he used it, it's a, immediately you have that feeling of, oh, this is really good. I'm in really good hands here. I can, I can sit back and just enjoy this, you know. So, um, yeah, the set pieces were great. About the uh, Elizabeth Debicki um, character, I mean, I've read this criticism. Uh, Jessica Kiang in, uh, in the New York Times Review says she has a son where she should have a character, which I thought was a, <laughs> a, 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 an excellent line. But I mean, you know, does Nolan do character? Um, you know, what was Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Inception? It, was it wasn't it just Leonardo DiCaprio? I mean, I'm I'm not sure how. I mean, it, it was just a very. Um, I'm, I'm trying to not to get into spoiler territories. I, I will sure. I will tell this once we get out out of this with more depth. But there was something cliched. While the men were saving the world, she was putting um, sun cream on Kenneth Branagh's back. That was such an odd scene, but yeah, we should. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, it was the bit where he stood up afterwards. I, I hope this isn't a spoiler. But he just stands up afterwards and he has like sun cream dripping down his back, and it's just like. Globs of sun cream. It was <laughs> really weird. <laughs> It's almost like there's going to be a deleted scene where they talk about sun cream being <laughs> some sort of agent that does something because otherwise I couldn't because she puts some on the floor as well at the start. Oh no, wait a second. No, okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll no, now I remember that there's a reason for that. Okay. Oh, oh, so there is a reason for him them putting it on the back as well. Okay. I can. I can. I've just realised. Keep keep this in mind. Sure. Well, I just want to ask, where does this fit into the Nolan universe? You think is he growing, or has he kind of gone backwards? No, no, I don't think he's gone back. I think this is a, I think this is a much of a muchness with Inception. I think that, I think Inception's kind of got the 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 shock of the new, in that it was really the first of its sort of like hyper intelligent sort of high concept thrillers, and the first time you really got the sense of the Bond espionage stuff coming out so i would put it i would put it side by side probably a little bit lower than inception um it doesn't feel as important as dunkirk mm. felt um i don't think it has the heft i don't think it intends to have the heft of that i you know um i don't think there's much sort of emotional weight beyond you know it, and and certainly to to get emotional weight and what we were talking about earlier in terms of character you'd have to really go back to Insomnia and Prestige, which are both films which are not original stories by. Um, so I, I, it's not, it doesn't feel like a, a massive step forward, but I wouldn't say, I, well, I mean, obviously everybody's making all these time travel jokes. So I, I should say, yeah, he's going back in time, <laughs> but then going forward, there's an entry, it's an, I mean, it's an object which has a different entropy to, to you, more, most films. But um, uh, it's 
it's not for me it's not like a five star if i was going to put it as glibly as as doing a star rating which i do all the time so um a, I, I wouldn't say it's a five-star film. I, I, it's probably a very solid four. Do you think the industry who's been, you know, has its eyes on this for months and months and months and the whole save cinema, do you think that they can breathe lighter now? This will go well? I don't think... The thing is, I think the, there's something quite clever going on here because I think the whole save cinema stuff is a little bit of a win-win situation for him because it's so obviously not going to save cinema. It's so obviously... Uh, I mean, this is a sort of way that usually French critics from the 1960s talk about cinema, cinema dying or living or dying. I mean, it's ridiculous. The cinema's going to be here as long as as we are here. It's 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 never going to be un uninvented, even if it becomes vinyl, even if it becomes a niche taste. So I think that sort of alarmism, you know, it, it, it doesn't really doesn't. I mean. It, Exactly, yeah, and and so in a way, it, it only has to do. It can it can have a loss, and it would still be seen as relatively successful. I think. I think it will probably do very well, um, and they'll sell they'll sell it video on demand to sort of an earlier date than they would normally for a higher price, and do something like that. I uh, it, it was a very expensive film. I mean, it, for an original script, I think it was hugely expensive, but um, but it's Nolan. He's in a different category. Well, let's get into those spoilers. Let's get back to the sun cream. Everyone wants to hear about the sun cream now. So Elizabeth Debicki plays um, Kenneth Branagh's long-suffering wife. What would you call her? An art dealer? She's kind of like an art expert, expert isn't she? Because right. she can tell what the, the if the piece is fraudulent or not. And, and Kenneth Branagh is the bondiest Russian oligarch uh, villain we've seen in ages. <laughs> he just goes, swings for the fences. Oh, he's family. having so much fun. So much fun. <laughs> um, and he's basically blackmailing her to stay in the relationship. And he's incredibly cruel. And so go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I just love the fact that, uh, you know, I mean, Branagh seems to be in that part of his career where he, he he's doing Poirot with a silly moustache and then he's doing this and he's he's sort of uh he's having a really good third act I think I'm really enjoying what whenever he appears on screen I really and I think he was he's actually better in this than he is in Dunkirk because in Dunkirk he's uh he's really good but he's I think he says the line he keeps asking rhetorical questions like you know you can almost smell it smell what home you know that's like he says that like five five or six times in the film but in this one he doesn't he's he's yeah he, he really has fun with it choose a bit of scenery but the end her role is basically to keep him occupied he can't die before a bomb explodes in another part of the film um and this is where the sun cream comes in so what was your theory about the sun cream? right I, this is because i was <laughs> I was looking at it thinking, why are they, it's such a slightly weirdly disgusting image, this guy smeared with sun cream, that she was going to give him a massage. And she's also squirted some sun cream on the deck of the boat. But when she kills him, yeah, so it's she slides his body off the deck. So the sun cream on the deck and the sun cream on his back now has, it's the Chekhovian sun cream. Yeah. If it's sun cream smeared on somebody, you know they're going to be slid off a boat at some right. point. And it's, murdered. Exactly. But it's just so funny that that's so, such a detailed piece of murdering that, you know. 
But didn't you find that she has been, you know, adverse to him and all of a sudden she's flirting and sun creaming and, and the fact that he buys it, it didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I mean, I think this is partly a problem with the, the, the film's inflation, you know, and this is a very Bondian thing. They inflate the stakes so much that when they need to do that thing of, of needing a bit of subtlety, there's none there to have. It's not earned. So he's so evil. Yeah, absolutely. Why Why would she ever? he ever believe her? Why would she ever have feelings for him to begin with in order to have a son? Um, he, he doesn't show much charm. We're only getting that real brutal, you know, pig. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that there isn't much space to go for. And she's not, and that also says something about her lack of character in terms of any depth, because that that last part seems to be written for a character who is a kind of trophy wife bimbo. Right. Who, yeah, bimbo is not, not a word I should mm -hmm. use really, but uh, that, kind of, that kind of Bond girl, if you like, with that in the genre, um, and not the intelligent art, art expert who can recognize a Goya, uh, you know, um, looking through a special glass. You want to hear a theory that I have regarding this couple throughout the movie when I was sort of like, okay, I'm not getting this part. This is over my head. I suddenly felt super smart because at one point or at many, many points, John David Washington's character, which called the protagonist and Robert Pattinson with kind of a fixer um, and they worked together. I, I really liked them together. I thought they were excellent, by the way. Um, he keeps asking him, how do you know this? How do you know this? Why are you working with me to Robert Pattinson? And I suddenly went, my God, that Neil is their son. Max. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, I, no, and I'm like, totally oh, agree. I'm patting myself on the back. And then at the end, there's a scene when they're, you know, they've saved the world and the, the three of them are standing there sort of ready to separate. And he starts asking all these questions, John David. And there I'm like, okay, here it comes. Here it comes. Um, and no, he, they never did. That. <laughs> He's not the son or, or he is, but left for us to speculate. No, I, 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 that is, I felt incredibly clever as well, which, which shows which shows how, how we're all living in, you know, it's not our universe, we're just living in Nolan's. Because I think that sets it up for a sequel as well. I think there's, um, I think he, I think uh, um, the protagonist marries uh, Elizabeth Debicki's character, who, who I can't remember her name. Cat. Is, is, is it Cat? Okay. A Catherine, I think. So um, I think she, because I, I was expecting him at the end to say, you raised me. You know, you were my, you're my dad. Ah, so you're saying it's a sequel. Mm, okay. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. He doesn't tend to do like sequels to his own, to his own movies, but I, I mean, except for the, uh, the Batman trilogy, but that was, that's not original sort of material. But I think this one sort of scene feels much more like a setup for an, a, a sequel than um, Inception was, for instance. Yeah. Inception yeah. felt like it's totally its own thing. But I was halfway through the film, I was also wondering, I wonder if these universes are the same. You know, I wonder if the, you could have an, an inception, you could actually maybe, uh, um, you could do what M. Night Sh uh, Shyamalan did and, and do a third film, which would be a combination of the two. Interesting, yeah. Now, I was just gonna go back, I was just gonna say, I, I totally agree with you about Robert Pattinson as well. He was, uh, I thought he was brilliant. I think uh, he's another actor who seems to be Every role he's in, every film he's in, he's doing something interesting. He's 
he's decided to do an art sort of art movie um character pieces rather than lead and 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 also at the same time doing the odd big budget thing like this and the batman of uh -huh. course is coming out and it feels like he's he's the sort of doing an english version of whacking phoenix he's building up a body of work which has almost been under the radar and in a few years time we're going to look back and see this is one of our best actors and we weren't even paying attention you know from the lighthouse to this one of the reasons I think both you and I got stuck on this, Neil, there's something in how he plays it that you feel like there is more to this character. Right. And in a lesser film, he would, of course, be the traitor. In a, in a lesser film, at the end, he's the one who turns around and says, I'm so sorry, but I've, all, the, all along, I'm working for... And I mean, I was actually thinking of that being a potential twist where, you know, towards the end, where he might be working for his father. And that might be the son... Right. Another twist, yeah. But let's talk a little bit about the philosophy of the movie. Or I think I, the thing I find really interesting about the way Nolan uses this stuff, well, first of all, I mean, the film is very, very careful to say this isn't time travel, this isn't back to the future, this is about entropy being reversed, which looks like time travel, but isn't. And there's, a, there's lots of talk about paradoxes, like can you go back and kill your grandfather and if you did then you wouldn't be alive in order to kill your grandfather and so it plays with that but mostly it plays with that to dismiss it and uh i lost count of the number of times characters tell you to stop thinking about it too hard <laughs> so i think that's uh that those instructions quite so i thought i it, all of that worked for me and the twists worked i loved the way you saw a fight happen forwards and then backwards i i did guess the, the the masked men who attack Robert Patterson and and um, uh, and Washington were both were going to be either both of them or, or one of them coming back from the future. Um, but I, I also think it's really interesting in the way Inception was not really about dreams because dreams are don't look like James Bond movies. They, you know the. Salvador Dali dreams don't look my, like my dreams. J.G. Ballard's dreams don't look like my dreams. Christopher Nolan's dreams don't, because dreams are used by artists and writers to just explore their own imaginary space rather than to really, you know, uh, accurately portray what having a dream is as a life experience. I also think that this isn't really about time travel because in Inception, the dreams were was about filmmaking. It was specifically about I'm a filmmaker. I can put an idea in your head. I can make it moving, I can sell it to you, and I can manipulate you. And I mean, he says it on a blackboard, you know, he points it out, and they have a budget, and they have a producer, and they have, you know, and then, and it's amoral. They're not doing it to save the world, they're just doing it for, you know, capitalism. Um, and I think the same is true here. I think time travel feels like it's about filmmaking. It's a it's almost about the story is about how do we tell a story? The story is about how do we fix the story? So there's, there are scenes where they're going back in time to find the location of a MacGuffin, which is, which is really a, you know, like a Harry Potter horror, what, what were they called in Harry Potter? Horcruxes or something? So you have, you know, a, an object broken into parts and you've got to put them together or the baddies got to put them together and the goodies have got to keep them apart. Um, so it sort of became a story about that. So it was almost like, uh, you know, it was almost like some of the scenes of exposition became like um, production meetings in a writing writer's room. What are we going to do? How are you going to get in there? 
And that's interesting, just to interrupt briefly, because that's what was one of my thoughts when I immediately came out was that's the reason why he goes so incredibly cliche with uh, Bond and film and other, it feels like he's moving back and forth in film history as well. He's taking, you know, that type of cliche thing in the past. You guys know this about matinee films, and this is the new stuff. Oh, absolutely. No, that's totally true. I think that's, that's a really, that's a really interesting point. I, I mean, one of the things I really want to do is go back and rewatch this movie now and, and look for things like, like what you've just said. And I'm sure in the next few weeks, we're going to hear a lot of theories that we can then enjoy rewatching. Yeah. And someone would say that's too generous of us to say, but I, but there's a feeling for me that that, that that works. No, absolutely. Uh, someone, I think again on Twitter, someone posed the question, you know, if you have to go back and rewatch a film to understand it, is, is it failing in the film? I, I think, that, you know, nobody, no, there's nobody writes these rules. Why, why have we got to write them ourselves? There's, there's no, you know, there's plenty of films that I, uh, that have massive uh, rewatch value, which I, I, I much prefer, you know, I remember watching The Truman Show and thinking, oh, that was good. I must have watched that like a hundred times since, and every time I watch it, it's better and better and better. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think this is a this is that type of film. I mean, uh, I was listening to your podcast uh, earlier about Mulan and how Disney almost are intentionally making films that they know will be rewatched over and over and over again. I think Nolan is doing the same thing. I think he's, you know, um, I think part of the budget is is going to be written off as like okay we'll pay for that with the people who come back and watch it five or six times. I, I, one of the things about the the set pieces as they um, apply to the sort of philosophy of the movie is that there are several times like we watched something happening in where they kept the art, the Oslo um, airport, Freeport it was called, yeah. the Freeport. Freeport, yeah, which was a, a beautiful detail as well. Super exciting, everything. Um, and then I would be like, what did they actually do in there? <laughs> I mean, I... I yeah, well, that's what I mean by the MacGuffin, really. You know, yeah. they've got to go there and get the doohickey and put it somewhere else, but I'm not even sure what the doohickey actually is. So that at the end, we can see that they're fighting each other. Yeah, 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 precisely, to just give you that moment. I mean, I mean, even going back to um, uh, the, the, the final scene between Cat uh, and um, Andre, the Branner and the Vicky characters, um, I was thinking, why don't you just pull a gun on him and tie him to a chair and just yes. incapacitate him for, for 20 minutes? Why, why does it have to be this sort of seductive scene played out with... Uh, and I, I, I think, I mean, if you, again, maybe if I'm being generous there, but you could, you could use your generic defence there. Well, this is a, a very familiar scene that, that we've all seen before. I mean, I do think that's a tad generous because I think... <laughs> I think it's just maybe narratively a bit lazy. They're just mm. thinking, uh, we've seen this in films, so we'll do it again. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, it, but I mean, what was it? The last, um, the last Mission Impossible film, the last two Mission Impossible films had a female protagonist who was much more sort of active and dynamic and much less, you know, I mean, we've had Wonder Woman and we've had, I think we've come a long way. I think this is also maybe speaking to where we are in our culture that we right. we when when we're no longer satisfied with this kind of portrayal it just feels too we're past this exactly yeah yeah and uh, i mean that's a problem that bond has had to come up come up against and uh, has done so with with you know 
limited success, but but it, it, at least it's at least there's a, there are moves in the right direction. Do you find that there's a in the philosophy that he does have that there's anything relevant to our time? Yeah, yeah, de- I definitely do. I think there's. I mean, I I think Nolan. I this is one of the contradictions I have with liking him so much because I do really like him. I really think he's a, an interesting filmmaker and also from a, a level of craft. He just really knows how to put together a movie. He really knows how to, you know, the editing is brilliant. The the cinematography is great. The soundtrack is really, really works. Um, the costumes are fantastic. I mean, he really knows how to assemble that team. And by the way, the, that's also another thing with Inception that he has here is the putting together a team to do a heist, which is one of the most uh, satisfying moments in the movie. But, but well, oh, I've lost my thread of what we were what the original question was. If he has something bigger to say with this. Ah, right, yeah. So, so although I, lo- I love all of these aspects, I can't help but think he's, a, he's very politically, I'm much more from the left progressive spectrum and I feel he's very, very conservative mm-hmm. and very, um, you know, he sees the world as always on the brink of chaos, a storm is coming. And the old order, as bad as it might be, still needs preserving by a few individuals doing, you know, violent things on the fringes of society. Um, I feel that that was emblematically sort of portrayed right at the very beginning when you have the terrorists burst into an orchestra, into not, uh, you know, sort of the high cultural things, and one of them stamps on a violin. Really, that's a sort of like, ooh, you know, <laughs> kill the children, but save the instruments. You know, uh, you could see, feel the middle class sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> sensitivity button be, being triggered. I'm um, going to take that line, kill the children, save the instruments. <laughs> it's yeah. T-shirt material. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so you, you, you get that sense of disorder and there's, there's very little moral... Um, I mean, there's a little bit of moral darkness to what um, the protagonist represents, I guess. So, you know, this is, see- I mean, it's, it's kind of Masonic, you know, there's a gesture and a word. Um, there's very little that's sort of like democracy. There's, you know, I mean, he's dealing with arm dealers. He's dealing with all these powerful people. And the idea is, you know, we'll sort this out. Us very powerful people will sort this out. And everybody else, you're just kind of victims. Um, and so even though it mentions environmentalism at the end, I mean, even the environmentalism, the, the crazy greens are going to go back and kill everybody because of what we've done to the planet. Exactly. Which is essentially, you know, that, that's Greta Thunberg is going to kill everybody who's ever lived because of what we've done, you know, to, to the planet. Um, and, and when he finally has a moment which, of genuine darkness, when he kills... Um, when he kills the arms dealer he was kind of in a, an unsteady alliance with. Um, I mean, I thought that was a really undersold moment. I, th- but I thought that was a moment where you should have said, wait a second, the question was asked right at the beginning, would you kill a woman? Would you hold a child hostage if it means completing your mission? And, you know, that was the answer. The answer was, okay, this is how far I've come. I will shoot this woman in the back an unarmed woman, uh, and I, at the cost of a part of my soul, I, I'll have achieved my... But it was really undersold. It was really like... Um, so, I, yeah, I do think he has a very consistent philosophy. I think you can see it through all his films. Uh, and the article that you referenced at the, um, 
uh, when you introduced me earlier the, the, that I wrote oh, the hot corn is it, it's startling how this idea of him lying or, or promoting the idea of the good lie, you know, Harvey, Harvey didn't commit these crimes, the Joker did. Oh, sorry, Batman did. I'll take on the sins of it. it they're full of unnecessary lies, these films. They're not even like uh, necessary lies. They're just about not trusting people with the truth um, and, and maintaining an, an elite. There's an elite group that knows what the truth is and everybody else will just have to trust them, you know? Right. Um, so it's very, it's very conservative. It's very um, reactionary, I guess. So, I mean, looking at nowadays, looking at, you know, the political spectrum with Donald Trump, with Putin, um, Bolsonaro, and all these people, yeah, I, if I was a, you know, or even the super rich, you know, if I was a, a, a Russian sort of oligarch watching this film, I wouldn't necessarily see myself as being a villain in Kenneth Branagh because there are lots of super rich people in this film who are, who are not oh, the yeah, villains. And the life, yeah, exactly. And the lifestyle is perfect. You know, I mean, yeah, um, uh, Michael Caine turns off as basically money, you know. Um, I was thinking about the Priya character as well, the Indian arms dealer, which is also sort of super rich and um, the rest of the people know nothing that's going on while she's basically ruling the world. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I, you know, you're kind of, it's funny as well that, that she is the, is where he positions his sort of feminist um, credentials by saying, ah, yes, you sometimes need a man to, to front you in this world. And that also made me think, oh, is this going to do something clever where the, it was going to turn out that Kat is the person who's, who's really running all of this, but alas, alas, he, he wasn't going to pull that trick twice. Um, yeah, no, she, absolutely. She's, she's very rich. And the only reason he takes her out is because uh, she threatens Kat. She threatens uh, the woman he's sworn to protect. It's not because she's a socially damaging individual who's going to, you know, I mean, ultimately that question about would you kill someone to complete your mission? Well, this isn't completing the mission. This is just, you know, saving one private individual who he's become close to. Whereas, uh, you know, it's not like a, it's not like a trolley dilemma where I have to kill this one person, otherwise a hundred people will die. Um, so it, it does have, I just think he has these very, I don't think it's as, I don't think it's as, uh, it, he necessarily articulates this to himself as an ideology. I just think it's where his instincts are. Mm -hmm. His instincts, he's coming from a very wealthy background, a, very, a place of great privilege. He, he, he's We're perfectly talking about Nolan here. Yeah, talking about Christopher Nolan, yeah. Um, he's lived a kind of transatlantic upbringing, so he's got one foot, he's got a lot of respect and love for England and British culture and all the rest of it. And he's also very aware of American sensibility and you know, the, 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 all the pol politics that go with that. Um, so I think his sympathy is with, you know, people who dress very, very well and enjoy fine things and live in beautiful places. And um, I mean, in this film, you would be hard put to, to actually name a character who comes from a, an ordinary background or from anywhere, you know, who, anyone who isn't well they even joke about that that john david washington i mean michael Caine says that he can't be wearing brooks brothers if he wants to save the world so i guess they're saying that john, that character perhaps comes from a slightly different background than everyone else 
Yeah, absolutely. But he, he has absolutely no social anxiety about that or that no, you don't see his home or see any, any discomfort he has as a, you know, he, he slips right in. Um, also, I, I mean, I thought that was funny in terms of uh, when they sort of get the gang together to, to pull the heist of the, of the truck, of the security truck, which again, I think was one of the best sequences in the film. I really enjoyed that. And it's a kind of very basic idea as well. Um, they, he says, you know, well, I need someone to do this, someone to do that, the truck driver, this guy, that guy. And they get them together without, you never see them actually getting them. So those guys are just, just the hired help. And uh, they, they don't have lives or anything. They're just, you know, guy in truck one, guy in truck two, um, which is fine. There's nothing, but it seems sort of, that seems like a, a so, such a lack of interest in the rest of the world. Um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> the rest of the world needs to know nothing of what's going on here. You just live your lives. We'll take care of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can see how this would fit. I mean, it would fit with far right and far left views of the world. You know, this could be QAnon and it could be, you know, um, uh, the, you know, the, the, the capitalists of the world, um, you know, just dealing with everything without any reference to institutions or law. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it, it's, it sometimes feels a bit weird to talk like this about something which is so obviously also positioning itself as just basically entertainment, but I would argue that nothing is ever just basically entertainment and it's always interesting how these things sort of creep in, um, even if the maker doesn't intend them. I mean, I, as I say, I don't think he's writing a manifesto and I just think he's reflecting the world and the values he comes from. And also to, to your point earlier that it's, all, it's always about filmmaking, the fact that the John David Washington character is named protagonist and not agent or man or, I mean, that says something about where, you know, where his mind is. Absolutely. No, definitely. It's a, a meta, um, you know, a meta moment. And um, I mean, I even got that feeling with the casting generally, you know, talking about you know do any of these people actually have characters or do they just have roles you know mm -hmm. uh, michael kane does he have a character or when he comes in isn't it just oh it's michael kane he's turned up to do he's, a he's even named sir michael isn't he yeah yeah he's so it's it's just obvious and it, it's obviously a role he's he's been sort of given i i feel that it's almost like he's one of christopher nolan's mascots you know i just need him in my film so uh, it'll be Michael, Michael, darling. It'll be one day's filming. You, <laughs> sit, you have a good meal, no moving around. You know, I can imagine that conversation. Um, so, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's true. Also, you know, Kenneth Branagh is a film director and you've got him cast as your main villain who's trying to manipulate things, trying to manipulate the protagonist. Um, so that's that's a, another another sort of meta thing. You start with a massive audience, which of course, pre-COVID nineteen, you would have been sitting in a packed cinema watching a packed audience, and so that would have had a relevance. Also, I mean, I have to say that's kind of a daring move on Nolan's part because, uh, you know, tragically there was a mass shooting in one of his films. So packed audiences and violence happening in auditoriums. You know, you, you you think maybe he'd want to steer clear of that as as a, a imagery. You know, um, in a sense that that shows what I said earlier might be true that he's not really that conscious on that level of of the sort of more social political ramifications of what he's doing. But it's still it's still kind of there. 
Do you think there's any point in trying to uh, unravel the weapon itself, the inversion? The Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I wonder about that. I wonder if on one level it's just the blue beam that comes down from the sky in every Marvel movie and you need to get shut it off for, for things to survive. And on another level, it's it's a weird... It, 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 it reminds me almost of a sort of Revenge of Nature movie, like, um, what was it? There was an Australian film called, I think it might have been called The Long Weekend, where, you know, and Jaws, to some extent, is a Revenge of Nature movie as well, where, you know, you treat nature, uh, you know, badly, and it comes and it bites you, you know. Uh, that, it, that with the environmentalist angle, the story that the environmentalist, the environmentally destroyed future, is actually having uh, committing war against the past. Um, I mean, that doesn't really make much sense because if if they're doing it, then why aren't they doing it in a much more effective way? Why aren't they? You know, they have all the advantages, surely. Um, but the, I mean, there is a sort of generational thing going on there. I mean, ultimately, it's the young against the old. It's the you know the the, the as yet unborn against the people who are who are still not signing up to the Paris you know, climate agreement. Um, who destroyed the planet for the coming generations. Yeah, but, but weirdly, this film positions them as the baddies. You know, it's like, it's like if you remade Jaws, but you made it about a whale. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's uh, I don't know. I'd, I'd be very interested to hear sort of other people's takes on this because I, I'm I don't, you know it's really interesting to hear yours because I, I feel we're, we're very I mean the one thing because we were very much at least agreed on the fact that it's worth talking about because one thing I've noticed is especially on Twitter there's this tendency to to go into camps straight away uh, like happened most recently with Joker where you know you either had to love it or you had to hate it there was very little in between ground and I think Nolan is a little bit a victim of his own success in that people are using him as a way of attacking the people who like him. So it's like, oh yeah, the film bros all love Nolan and, you know, and vice versa. And it's, it's partly to do with just everybody becoming team Marvel or team DC, or it, it's that comic book uh, spread of that kind of discourse. But I think it's really, um, I think it's a really, really impoverishing movement in criticism. I think, you know, come on, you can like it, and you can not like something and find it very interesting at the same time. You don't have to, you know, liking something is the least interesting question. You know, did you like it or not is the least interesting question. It's, it's, it's why, how, what's going on? You know, that's the, those are much more interesting questions than whether you liked it or not. Yeah, just because it isn't the masterpiece or the five out of five or however you rate your movies, the fact that we're so there's so many questions and some so many interesting angles to look into it, even the stuff that doesn't work, um, just is what makes it interesting and makes it good in that sense. And it and it's a pity to to have such categorical you know roles you either love it or hate that you you know miss that whole discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I, told, I, I that's I'm I'm sort of fighting a, 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 a rather sort of quixotic, you know, war against things like uh, Oscars and uh, award ceremonies generally. I think you know 
it's like the Berlin Alley now have decided not to do uh, best actor and best actress and just do best best act, best performance. You know, as a non-gendered. Um, I think that's fine. I think there's nothing wrong with that. The, but but the idea of giving prizes generally feels to me wrong. If something's genuinely is genuinely good, it kind of is good on its own stakes by via its own criteria. It invents its own criteria. So, you know, the reason I love uh, certain films is because they're incomparable. You know, it's very difficult to, to compare them to others. I mean, you can talk about them, in, but you can't rate them or rank them. That's the, you know, ranked from best to worst is, I mean, you know, I've written the same articles myself. I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know, I know what the, the game is, but we should always be aware that, you know, <laughs> Well, good luck with that fight. I'd hide the sun cream if I was you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'll never get on a yacht, so I'm safe. <laughs> Death by yacht is not going to be in my obituary. <laughs> uh, but you do, you do live in the hills outside of Venice, so I'm, there's no little tiny violin for you either. <laughs> <laughs> rightly so, rightly so. And I've never been on one of those boats. What were those boats? You know the race. Oh, the ones like the catamaran type of thing yeah. where you had to Yeah, that seemed like that seemed like a workout. That seemed like <laughs> I'd an, rather go on the yachts. <laughs> that seemed like an infomercial or or you know, when they used to have video jukeboxes, that would be the video that played when no one had chosen a song, you know. Yeah, right. Or some Italian ad for really expensive vodka or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. So is there anything else you want to mention in terms of like the technical aspects of the movie? Uh, yeah, um, I, well, I, I think what we talked about earlier in terms of the, the, the set pieces uh, were all well done. I think there's a, he does that thing of always leaving you wanting more. The opening, I, I really wanted to see more of that action and, and yet you got, so you never got bored of it. You always knew what was, you didn't necessarily know what the, the aim of the plan was, but you knew the practicalities. They had to hold their breath for 10 seconds and, and that sort of stuff. All of that I thought was excellent. And the hijacking scene, which is probably, probably one of the more simpler, most conventional ideas, were, was just so well done. I, just, I love that sort of, um, that, that material. Um, the music was very Zimmerish, if not, you know, I was kind of surprised to find out it wasn't Hans Zimmer at the end. I loved the music. I thought it was, and, and it has Zimmerish things, but it also has another, even another level of sort of sci-fi sound play um, that I think really elevated the, 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 not that type of music that's so irritating that's telling you what you want to feel, but was elevating the sort of backwards, forwards, timeline things that I thought was excellent. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a little bit of, um, in, in Inception, I noticed there's a little bit of sort of Vangelis going on in the soundtrack mm. as well. And I felt that here, there was a little bit that I was thinking, it almost sounds a little bit like Kraftwerk. There, there are these little electronic bits that, um, that yeah, it, it, it's definitely, well, I always find that um, even when Hans Zimmer does the music, it's, it's always very distinctive rather than being, uh, he does music for other things where, he's not really bringing his A game, but with Nolan, you get the feeling 
he's always reinventing it. I don't know, what's the name of the composer here? Um, Ludwig Göransson, he won the Oscar for, he's actually Swedish, he won the Oscar for Black Panther. Oh, of course, yes. And he, yeah, and he just did Mandalorian and, and he's the producer of Childish Gambino. Oh, the one thing I would say about the technical aspect, which, um, which I think has been consistent for a, a filmmaker who has so trumpeted the theatrical experience, I'm always struggling with his sound mix. Mm. And he's mm. won Oscars for it. He's won Oscars for his sound design, but I'm always struggling to hear what's going on. Um, and, and so much so that it, it's got to be intentional, but I much in, I, my, my preferred way of watching Christopher Nolan films is on Blu-ray with the subtitles on, you know, because um, otherwise I miss what's being said. It's just, it feels like the human voice is so low down in the mix which might be a metaphor for his whole filmmaking ethos, you know, yes. the least important. <laughs> if what atmosphere? Only the elite can understand <laughs> what's going on. Well, when they were talking backwards, it was a bit where they're talking backwards and they go, ah, it's, it's backward. They're talking backwards. And I thought, well, weren't they already talking backwards? Yes. <laughs> I couldn't work out if that was just me, but yeah, no, I really struggled with that. I wish you'd saw that. I just wanted to mention the last uh, set piece, the big uh, finale. That's the one I struggled the most to sort of feel like, where are we now? Are we backwards, forwards? Are we red team, blue team? Who exactly opened the door? That took a lot of discussion for us who had gone to see it afterwards for me to understand. Yeah, I, I think he, I, I really think he's gone as far as he can go without blood at the moment. I think that, um, I think it wouldn't matter the, the the general sense of the geography and the narrative it wouldn't matter so much if you really just felt the violence a bit more if you just felt that you know one person gets killed in a way that you see the the basically the rocks implode towards them i just yeah, and locks him in exactly yeah i just think um he i think he's done this thing from batman where it was batman so he's not going to show any blood and even the dark knight someone's going to get there head pierced by a pencil, but you'll never see anything. And, and that works for Batman. I can understand the rationale. But I think for these films where you've got guns going off, it's like the A-Team. You need to really show some of the consequences of the violence here. And again, that goes back to when he shoots the arms dealer, the Indian arms dealer, right at the end. Um, there's no blood. There's no... Uh, I'm not talking... It doesn't have to be gory, but just a sense that these people have bodies that bleed would be... That's interesting because you're usually not calling out for that in this day and age. But I, I did read an interesting article now that you mentioned it just a couple of days ago that he always tries to be on the PG-13 level so that it can be a family film and not go over to R. I mean, Dunkirk was kind of aggressively not Saving Private Ryan, anti-Saving Private Ryan in many ways, because um, there's, there's practically zero blood in that film as well, which, again... I kind of see his point, I kind of, it, but it feels to me like it's more to do with an almost OCD, uh, you know, set of rules that he has for himself and complying with them is, is you know, what delights him. I, I would like to, I'd like to see something a bit more visceral because, because ultimately it makes it more exciting if you feel people can actually get hurt. I mean, like there's a br the brilliant fight in the restaurant kitchen where he picks up a cheese grater was just 
brilliant and, I, and, and fine, don't show any blood because I know that's already painful to watch, you know. I love that. That was super. But I think by the end of it, you need a couple of squibs to go off. Are you saying that it would have been more understandable? What side are we on? What's happening here? If that would have... No, but it, not necessarily, because I think those battle scenes are frequently, you know, you know, you look at Platoon or you look at that there's confusion is part of the 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 aesthetic. I, I just think you would feel more that if some if you saw someone got sh get shot in the shoulder and blood spurt out, you would think, ouch, this means something. Whereas it was too easy to watch this and think it's just like a video game. It's no one's really getting hurt. No, I, I, I honestly didn't know. By the end of it, did they? Did a lot of people die during the attack? Yeah, I didn't understand. Was it you know what was at stake sort of for the different you know, members of the team? Was there a certain team that had a worse fate than the other? It was very difficult to understand. Well, that was sort of um, teased and it, during the briefing where they said, "Oh, you can't see that other team because they've already done it." And yeah, and we're basing what we're doing on their experience. Yeah. yeah so I don't think that that. I mean, it worked okay. It didn't pull me out of the movie or disappoint me. It was an okay, it was very Bondian in its, you know, in a vault with a bomb and a, all that sort of stuff was generically very satisfying. Um, but, uh, but I just think it needed, it needed uh, you had a lot of debris and buildings. I mean, see, buildings got hurt more than people. Uh, in that in that film and in that part of the film. and Kenneth Branagh yeah yeah well he was he actually got quite a, um, a kind of gory death I mean he I felt hit the back of his head hit the boat as he went down um, you just need a little bit more of that I think so John can we say that at least it made in the if it doesn't save cinema it saved August oh yeah I, I, I really enjoyed it I really 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 pleased um, but, you know, um, cinema's going to be fine, you know. Cinema's fine. Bingo took over. All, the, all the, the cinemas closed and were taken over, in England at least, were taken over by bingo halls. And nobody goes to bingo no. anymore, you know. Bingo has no impact on the cultural conversation, um, you know. But cinema still does. So as long as we're talking about it, I don't see... I, I think the death is overrated, uh, is, you know... Um, Overreported. Well, maybe Nolan can do a bingo movie next in some exciting <laughs> that would be perfect. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what's that numbers get in Sudoku? Sudoku? The Sudoku on the yacht. Should... Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. John, thank you so much. And if my listener have to follow you on Twitter, it's Dr. Yanti, right? With Jay. Exactly. Um, to read more about your stuff. And, and I'm, I'm so glad that you wanted to join me. This was so much fun. And I really felt like I had to talk to someone who'd seen it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, it was brilliant. I really enjoyed it as well, Christina. I'd love to come back and talk to you some more. Hey, hey there. there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we 
even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.